In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Kent Greenfield, professor of law at Boston College Law School. Professor Greenfield's internationally recognized scholarship is unique because it bridges constitutional law and corporate governance. Today, we will discuss the seminal U.S. Supreme Court cases addressing corporate personhood, as well as his book, Corporations Are People Too and They Should Act Like It. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Kent. Hi, Amelia. It's great to be here. So today I'm really excited to share your book, Corporations Are People Too, and They Should Act Like It. It has a terrific title, uh, and I recommend it very highly. Um, But before we get into your book, I'd like to introduce your work more broadly. Academia, as you know, just like corporate America, can be quite siloed. And you are one of the few scholars who focuses on both corporate law and constitutional law. Can you tell us a bit more about why you focused your scholarship on bridging that gap? Well, for the first 20 years of my career, uh, more like 15 years of my career, I, I, I faced this question a lot and it was harder to explain. You know, it, one could say, well, it was, um, I, had, I had clerked in the Supreme Court, so of course I had, I had a lot of um, uh, curiosity about and, and um, desire to learn more about the Constitution, but I'd also worked in business. I'd worked at Levi Strauss and Company as a as a young man out of college, and, and of course I knew that I had a lot of pride in the role that Levi's plays in that community and throughout the world because of their of its commitment to, to social responsibility. So in a way I had a, a foot in both camps. And you know, when people would say to me, well, why are you doing both of these things? Or it's sort of odd in, a, in this highly siloed legal academy. And, and I would say, well, they're both about you know the organization and governance of large institutions or how you apply democracy or democratic norms. And, in, in the real world, but mostly it was BS. I did both because I like to do both. Um, I was interested in both. But then, you know, in 2010, when Citizens United was decided, it was so clear that you can't really understand corporations without understanding constitutional law. And also, you, so many of the cutting edge questions in constitutional law depend on one's understanding of the role of corporations and, and the, the, and so, after uh, Citizens United, you, it was so clear that to, to do a really good analysis of the role of corporations in society, you had to do both. And so, you know, by really by luck, I, I was well positioned to, to be a critic of that decision and, and, a, and a, um, an al- analyst of how to move forward from that decision because of that, uh, those preferences uh, that I had established beforehand. Right place at the right time. I guess so. I guess so. I, I empathize. I've always been interested in both corporate law and corporate governance and social and environmental justice. So, right. And, you know, like you don't, I, I try to educate my students about this. Like, if you care about environmental law, you need to know about corporations, right? If you want to, uh, if you care about the rights of employees, you need to know about corporations. And if you want to know about the First Amendment, you need to know about corporations. You know, half of all First Amendment claims these days are being brought by corporations and trade unions. So it's, you know, it's there's not a part of the law where uh, you don't need to know uh, what corporations are for and how they're governed. So let's move on to just distinguishing between or trying to distinguish between Delaware's ambit with respect to governing corporate law. Of course, we all know in the U.S., corporate law is state-based, with Delaware, of course, being the most influential. How do the Supreme Court cases addressing the rights of corporations impact Delaware law? Can you give us a sense of that interrelationship? It's always a little awkward, right? Because as you say in the United States, as, as 
compared to, as distinct from a bunch of other uh, developed democracies, the corporate governance law is, is determined at the state level. And, and 100 years ago or so, a little over 100 years ago now, um, Delaware won the competition among various states to provide uh, state, the state law of corporate, corporate governance. And so even today, you know, Delaware has, I think it's less than one half of 1% of the American population, but has two thirds of the Fortune 500 incorporated there. And so they're able to essentially to export their law from their state all around the United States and indeed the world because of quirk in the US system that state law is the governing law of corporations. And so I, so I think a lot of Supreme Court law that develops, you know, uh, so securities law is usually federal law. So there's a, there's a body of Supreme Court jurisprudence about insider trading and, and fraud and the like which of course affects corporate governance and affects the fiduciary duties of, of directors as provided by Delaware law. But then there's a bunch of these other cases that aren't really about corporate law per se, but, but embed in them a bunch of assumptions about corporate law. And that's you know, one of the things that I tried to tease out in my book. I think one of the things that the Supreme Court does poorly is that it takes for granted this body of corporate governance law um, that, that, that is both inaccurate as, as a matter of description of what Delaware law is, but also is even if it were an accurate description, it need not be imported into, into Supreme Court jurisprudence or Supreme Court uh, doctrine about the constitutional rights of corporations, for example. So there's, um, so there's a lot of uh, interaction between federal law and state law and a bunch of Scholars have, have studied that, including my colleague um, Renee Jones here at Boston College over, over, over time. But um, I, I think from my, from, from my perspective, the real danger is when the Supreme Court um, uh, makes assumptions about the fabric of corporate governance law that, that are, that's really just a function of Delaware politics and Delaware jurisprudence that could be changed at any moment and, and should be changed in my view. So let's get into some of those nuances there. Um, let's get into the Supreme Court cases addressing the constitutional rights of corporations, which you provide a very comprehensive overview yeah. of in your book. Let's move to um, the, the beginning. Uh, as you pointed out in your book, constitutional law has interpreted what the purpose of a corporation is in very conflicting ways throughout our history. Mm -hmm. Let's walk through that history and go back 200 years to Dartmouth College uh, versus Woodward. Can you break down that case for us? Yeah, so the, that's the most, that's, wasn't the first case on, on cost, the constitutional rights of corporations, but it was, it's the first uh, well-known one. And in that case, Chief Justice John Marshall was trying to decide whether the state of New Hampshire could essentially um, uh, make public Dartmouth College, and it was a contracts. Uh, for, uh, it, it, the, the question was whether the, the right of contract embedded in the Constitution, at least assumed to be at the time, would uh, protect Dartmouth College from encroachment by the state. And so John Marshall, um, you know, has has this has this phrase, you know, that 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 the Constitution. I'm sorry, that corporations are creatures of the state. And in some ways, that 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 part of the line, that part of the holding has a 
has a whole body of, of doctrine, analysis, and scholarship that follows from it that essentially says that corporations are whatever the state says they are. Then the second part of the, uh, his description there is they have the rights that whatever the state gives it and whatever rights are essential to their very existence. And, uh, and so that, in a way, is the project that I've been trying to, to figure out, like what rights are really inherent in the very makeup of, of, of a corporation and, and of a business. And I'm in the sort of, maybe oddly, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle camp here. Like I've got a lot of friends and colleagues um, who think that, who would say, you know, corporations are not people, which is shorthand for saying corporations should have no rights at all. Um, and then, you know, there are, there are those who think that, that corporate rights are really the same as, uh, in most cases, the, the rights of human beings. And I'm in the middle. And I think there are some easy examples of situations in which corporations are, should clearly be the recipients of or claimants of constitutional rights, property rights, for example. Like if the takings clause didn't, didn't apply to corporate entities, then nobody would invest in them. You know, the, the state could just seize property. You know, the, the state of Georgia could just seize a secret, secret uh, recipe of Coca-Cola or the state of Commonwealth of Kentucky could just seize the secret recipe of the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and without compensation and nobody would invest in Coca-Cola or, or um, KFC if, if the state could do that. So clearly property rights are constitutionally protected are, are rights that in my view, corporations should be able to, change, uh, to claim. On the other hand, there's some constitutional rights, the right to serve on juries, for example, the right to vote, which like there's no way to construct a, a corporate form and to, to think about the roles of corporations in America or in, a, or, or in any democracy in which it makes sense uh, in any um, uh, uh, manner to have corporations be the claimants of those constitutional rights. And the hard part, of course, which is, which is um, the, this middle area, you know, how about free speech rights? How about rights to claim uh, religious freedom? How about due process rights? And I think those are much, those questions are much more difficult than, and much more interesting, I should say, than than many uh, people on the left would assume, and I think, and are much more nuanced than than perhaps many people on the right would assume too. Um, so, the, the, just by way of illustration, one of the one of the things I did early in my career, this was back in the battle days, uh, when um, uh, President Clinton had. Institute of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, and a lot of law schools around the country were um, saying, you know, look, we don't we don't let military recruiters on the campus because you discriminate against some of our students. And law schools had a pretty pers uh, consistent uh, obligation and and commitment to anti-discrimination policies, including Boston College, including University of California, and and, and so uh, a lot of law schools said, look, you can't come onto onto campus. Uh, and then the Congress passed a law saying requiring uh, schools to to accept discriminatory employers on campus, and we you know we wanted to sue. I was one of the leaders of the the national group that that decided that we wanted to sue the Pentagon about um, about those issues. And the first thing we did was create a corporate form. We created a uh, a nonprofit institution, the the Forum for Academic and Institutional Rights. Law schools joined. Fair, it was called, 
And then Fair was the named plaintiff in a lawsuit asserting First Amendment rights to contest an anti-LGBT um, policy by the United States government. We sued you know, the Pentagon at a time of war as a highly unpopular thing to do, but we did it in a corporate form. We used the corporate form to be the advocate for um, uh, these, these rights. And I think that's a good illustration that sometimes it makes total sense for corporations to be the claimants of a, of a set of rights. Thank you for your terrific work and your leadership in, in FAIR. Um, I wanted to kind of turn to another nuance, uh, which I've been looking at lately, which is corporate charters. So of course, at the time that Dartmouth College was um, decided, there was a high level of specificity in charters actually outlining what that corporation's purpose was. And the corporate charters have changed dramatically to the point where now they're all uh, overwhelmingly boilerplate and simply say for any lawful purpose. Um, so that part of the analysis, uh, you know, breaks down. And then my other question is, well, uh, let, let me pose that question first. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a really smart question, Amelia. I, early on in our democracy, corporations, people were much more skeptical of corporate power than they are now as a, as a rule. Although I think as we've discussed, that might be changing. And so corporations were chartered for a specific purpose. You know, you, 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 you can, you'll be chartered to build this bridge and to operate this bridge. But, you know, if you start operating a ferry instead, then you can be sued for, for going beyond your, your authority as a corporation. And of course, Delaware, New Jersey first, and then Delaware, because it goes back to our earlier point, states were competing with, with one another to provide the most expansive and most most uh, permissive corporate governance rules. And that was one of the things that, that limited authority. Having said that, I do think, as you mentioned, the, the, the limitation on lawful purposes is still a real limit. Uh, and and I, and I think there's actually some people who I've been involved with, some lawyers and activists through the last few years who are trying, who are uh, thinking really creatively about ways to sue companies who are engaged in unlawful activities um, using an ultra-virus uh, theory. Hershey, uh, the chocolate company, was sued a couple years ago for allegedly using child, illegal child labor in West Africa in the, their production process. I know there's some other uh, lawsuits in the works these days uh, against corporations whose name you will you would recognize using the ultra-virus notion that, you know, that even though you can do any, any purpose, it still has to be lawful. And if you're persistently conducting unlawful activities under the, your corporate form and in order to pursue your corporate benefit, then you can be sued by shareholders in an ultra-virus suit uh, to, uh, to stop that illegal activity. That is fascinating work, and uh, I look forward to watching that space with you with respect to corporate charters and how they're evolving and how the interpretation of the corporate charter is evolving because ultimately it boils down to the license to operate. And you may have seen the opinion piece by uh, former Chief Justice uh, Leo Strine on uh, sort of that expansive interpretation of the corporate charter as the license to operate, particularly in this global pandemic. Uh, uh, there's one other thing that your question made me think of, which is, and it goes to something else that we were going, to, that we are going to talk about, which is the rights of companies to engage in political uh, speech and political spending. 
I think there's there's still an untried idea, which is to embed limits on corporate uh, spending and corporate political expenditures, and embed them in corporate charters. So instead of having the limits on corporate spending be external to the corporate form in the form of campaign finance regulations, you make it organic to the corporate form. And I think uh, if, if the state wanted to assert that power, you know, uh, if any of your listeners want to wanted to work with the state to do that, I'm happy to talk to them to, because we've I've, I've also engaged with some discussions with some other folks around the country who are trying to think about how that would look, what that would look like, what kind of litigation we would expect. But I do think there was a, because of the traditional deference that the Supreme Court shows to state law and corporate governance matters, that one could imagine this, uh, a Supreme Court that is usually focused on state sovereignty be much more deferential to limits on corporate power embedded in charters than, uh, than coming from the outside in corporate finance reforms, for example. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that the corporate charter is a very overlooked tool uh, for advancing the alignment of social interests with uh, business power or, reba- or rebalancing. So moving on from corporate charters, because I really can talk about this with <laughs> you all day. And, and, and uh, I, I'd like to move to some of the recent Supreme Court cases addressing the constitutional rights of corporations, starting with Citizens United, which of course has triggered much controversy. Can you uh, describe that case for us? Yeah, well, Citizens United, I think it's one of the more misunderstood cases in recent history, and, and it's and it's a bad ruling, uh, but not really for the reasons that most people think it, it's bad. Uh, so Citizens United was, was a case that, that changed the rules for corporate political spending. And in order to understand it, you sort of have to understand what the rule was before. And so back in 1976, the court made a distinction in its First Amendment jurisprudence between campaign contributions and campaign expenditures. So um, if you're if you're contributing to a campaign, um, uh, that's that's when you give money to a campaign in, uh, directly. And campaign expenditures is when I'm not giving it to the campaign, but I'm spending it on their behalf. You know, if I'm buying a commercial and using that commercial to advocate for a point of view or advocate for a for a uh, candidate. And in and the 1976 case, Buckley v. Vallejo, was about individual, like human being spending and expenditures. And the court said that the First Amendment right was much stronger with regard to the expenditures and the contributions. Because if, you give, if you're giving money directly to the, to the campaign, there's a greater risk of a, of a quid, quid pro quo kind of an understanding. Um, your money is, is, uh, is more attenuated from its ultimate use. Whereas if you're spending money for an ad, it's much more directly your speech. There's less of a risk of corruption. At least that's, that's the theory of the case. Um, soon thereafter, the, or about a decade later, the, the court made a distinction in a couple of cases um, where, with regard to certain kinds of political expenditures by, by corporations, the, uh, the court said, well, even though human beings might be able to spend money, corporations could not. Uh, and the reason why was that the, the corporations were a product of the state. It goes back to Marshall's opinion, Dartmouth College, uh, uh, are, are creatures of the state, and also there's more of a chance of 
corruption of the marketplace of ideas. Now, Citizens United comes around in, in 2010, and it's actually argued twice. And the challenge is to a limit on corporate expenditures uh, to, to publish ads. It had to do with the, the case in point had to do with a, uh, a movie about Hillary Clinton and whether it could be put on uh, on-demand cable stations. But basically, the question was whether, because it was funded by corporate money, whether that corporate money uh, could be limited because in ways that it wasn't limited if it had been uh, uh, put forth by a, a natural person, a human being. And there were a bunch of ways that the court could have, could have disposed of the case without deciding the big issue. But the court, in fact, decided the big issue and said, for purposes of the First Amendment, for purposes of campaign expenditures, the rules for human beings are going to be the same as the rules for corporations. So that's why in, in the shorthand is that, you know, that people say that Citizens United decided that corporations are people because in effect, it was saying the rules for people are going to be the same as the rules for uh, corporations. Uh, and after that, you saw this huge explosion of independent expenditures in the, uh, uh, the 2012 presidential cycle, the 2016 presidential cycle and the like. Um, but as I, as I talk about in my book, the, 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 what surprised me when I researched the book, the, this explosion in independent expenditures didn't actually come from corporate entities. It came from unions and, uh, and rich people. And so and one of the quirks in Citizens United is that it, it not only did it take off the caps for corporate spending, it took off the caps for union spending. And while corporations have, have actually been pretty reticent in engaging in corporate spending, um, uh, even since Citizens United, the unions have really stepped into the void. And, and in some ways, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm generally pro-union, and, and I, I think actually the Citizens United, because it's it's taken off a cap of union spending, it's probably benefited Democratic candidates over the last decade more than Republicans. All this is to say is that Citizens United is a weird case because it's often seen as standing for something that it actually doesn't stand for because it's about you know the independent expenditures and, and money is speech. But actually that that problem uh, uh, was you know, came about from uh, 35 years before. Uh, rather than Citizens United itself. And if you really want to you know, get in the weeds, the reason why that independent expenditures really blew up after Citizens United was not because of Citizens United, but because of a lower court opinion that came down a year or two later uh, from the DC circuit that really took the, took the cap off of super PACs. And super PACs have really been the problem in America since, 2000, um, since 2010 or 2011, not uh, campaign money per se. Uh, sort of corporate campaign money per se. So before Citizens United, the court, you know, faced this issue of what constitutional rights corporations should have time and time again. Um, but it drew the line much further in the direction of aligning individual rights with corporate rights in Citizens United and, and thereafter. My question is, what is the issue with the Supreme Court drawing that line? Of course, the, the Supreme Court, in some ways, they have to do it because they're the final arbiter of constitutional rights as opposed to corporate governance rights. But I do think the danger that you that you hint at there is real, which is that they make these assumptions about the nature of corporations that then affect 
uh, and infect their constitutional understandings. So for example, in Citizens United itself, one of the arguments in favor of limiting corporate expenditures is that you've got to take care of shareholders. You, you don't want corporations to be spending money willy-nilly um, in ways that, that undermine the, the, the true interest of shareholders and shareholders uh, in a sense are being coerced to use their contributions to, um, to, to spend money that really are, um, that are often more aligned with the interest of executives than shareholders. And so Justice Kennedy writing for the court in Citizens United said, oh, that's not really a problem. That's a corporate governance problem. And corporate governance figures that out uh, by way of, of, of corporate democracy. You know, shareholders can vote, shareholders can leave, shareholders can, can assert their own power within the corporate form. And we, you know, those of us who know anything about corporate governance know that that's, that shareholder power uh, within within a corporate corporation in order to, to dictate individual outcomes of policies is really limited. So in that respect, um, I, I do think that that the problem with Supreme Court jurisprudence in this area is that they make assumptions about corporate governance that aren't really accurate. And even if they are accurate, are not, are contested. So you know, let me raise you a, a, a different example. And you, this is probably something you're probably going to get to next is, is the religious freedom case. Hobby Lobby, which is a statutory case, but it mimics the constitutional frame. Uh, and uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was the, the, the case about the baker who refused to, to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And in both of those cases, the, uh, the asserted religious freedom right was asserted by the by the company, right? Hobby Lobby is a, is a we don't really have them much in, around Boston, but they're arts and crafts retailers, right? And Masterpiece Cake Shop was, it's a bakery in, in, on the outskirts of Denver. And as you can tell from the name of the case, the, the claimant is the corporate claimant. Hobby Lobby Inc. and Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited. And it, but in both cases, the holder of the religious interest was not the company. So in both cases, the company itself did not have a religious personality. Yet the shareholder, the primary shareholder, the do dominant shareholder in Hobby Lobby, was a, was, a, was a family, the Green family of Oklahoma. And in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, Jack Phillips, I think the baker's name was, he, he, had, he was uh, identified as an as a evangelical Christian who did not want to, to, to be, be forced to provide goods to a wedding ceremony that he disagreed with. But in both cases, the religious claim, the holder of the religious interest was the shareholder, not the company. But in both cases, the court just assumes that they're the same. So Jack Phillips' uh, interest in not selling a cake is uh, just assumed to be projected onto the interests of the company that he formed to, to sell baked goods. The interest of the Green family was uh, just assumed to be projected onto Hobby Lobby Incorporated. And in neither case did the court even sort of inquire or interrogate that assumption. Because in both cases, as you very well know, as your listeners know, the reason people incorporate is to separate themselves from the corporate form. Right? Jack Phillips' 
incorporated Masterpiece Cake Shop in order to insulate himself from the corporate form. So if the, the, the bakery went bankrupt, they, the, the, the um, creditors of the bakery could not come after him. But then on the other hand, when it comes to the First Amendment, he wants to be able to project, to disregard that corporate veil and project his, his interest, his religious interest onto the corporate uh, form. And as we, as we wrote in our amicus brief, in that case, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you, uh, you, you have to decide, are you separate from the firm or not? And I think this is, again, to go back to the corporate personhood point, I think the corporate personhood point is an important distinction for corporations and often will lead, the, if taken seriously, the Supreme Court would have come out differently in both of those cases. Because all, when, when someone says corporations are people too, at least you know, for those of us who know corporate governance, what we mean is that the corporation has a separate legal entity status than its employees, its shareholders, its executives, uh, its creditors. It's a separate legal entity. And if that separate legal entity is to mean anything, it means that it has to have its own set of rights and interests distinct from its stakeholders. And I think the court in both of those cases just ignored that completely. Kent, thank you so much for that analysis of Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece Cake Shop and well done on your masterful line in your amicus brief. Um, I'd like to move on to corporate personhood and corporate responsibility. So as you point out in your book, many progressives have, uh, in response to Hobby Lobby and uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop and Citizens United, wanted to restrict corporate rights. Um, and you take a very different and a much more nuanced take on that discussion and debate. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I always thought that, I, I think there's a big irony here that, that I noticed around the time of Citizens United. For most of my career up until that point, even when I was in, uh, before I was a lawyer, when I was working at Levi Strauss, my view was that corporations owed an obligation to society in general and should be and should be involved in the public square, right? And they should be, you know, like a lot of a lot of companies have corporate citizenship departments, right? They they want to act more like citizens, and I think that's for for the most part, a good thing. Like corporations should be attentive to the role of in society, attentive to interests and, and needs and views of all of their stakeholders and, and including the communities where they work. And I think that their involvement in the public sphere is by and large part a, a, a good thing. And after, since United and Hobby Lobby and the, and the like, a lot of people, as you say, on the left said, no, we, the last thing we want is corporate citizenship because that sounds really dangerous to us. We don't want corporations in the public square. We want them sort of cabined in this little, we'll let them stay and do the wealth creation over on the economic side. And we'll let the, the politics run itself over here. And I, you know, I, I understand that worry of corporate power. You know, I, I'm very uh, attuned to the dangers of of corporations, you know, uh, Larry Mitchell called corporations an externality machine, and I think that's still true to this day. But having said that, you know, my, most of my career was about you know trying to get corporations to be more socially minded. So it was it was sort of like this this inversion after since United, when the left was saying no, don't be socially minded, don't be publicly minded, be really privately minded, be narrowly focused. 
And so I thought, in fact, it came, it came so uh, far that in some of the briefs in the cases as, as in the Hobby Lobby as they were going up through the, through the courts, I don't think it ever happened to me, but it happened to Lynn Stout. Her view of corporation should be more broad gauged was starting to be cited in briefs on the side of Hobby Lobby. You know, this is what we're doing. In fact, Sam Alito, Justice Sam Alito, who wrote Hobby Lobby, talked in his opinion about how corporations should be about more than just money, more than just profit. So it was always odd. So I think, you know, that tagline in my book is to try to get us to re-engage in that question. And so my res response to this moment is to say, it is not a problem that corporations are engaged in politics. The problem is for whom they are engaged. Who are they acting on behalf of when they engage in politics, engage in lobbying, engage in political speech? You know, when they engage, you know, and we've seen a lot of the last few weeks, a lot of corporations are weighing in on Black Lives Matter, on the, on the per persistent and, and systemic racism that we have experienced in this country for decades. And I like to see those corporate voices uh, you know, when the anti-trans bill was passed in North Carolina, a lot of corporate voices were the were the, were the most prominent voices uh, criticizing that anti-trans those anti-trans uh, laws. Sure, with Salesforce and PayPal, and absolutely right. Um, Bank of America. You know, after Trump was elected, you know, a lot of corporations. Uh, I remember the the Super Bowl ads in 2017. Uh, right after his inauguration, you know, where you know Coca-Cola had this beautiful ad during halftime of of um, America the being the beautiful being sung in all these different languages by all these different people of different races and different different um, uh, sexual orientations, and it was it was beautiful. You know, my eyes are not so closed that I don't understand that Coca-Cola is trying to sell Coca-Cola. I think it's possible for corporations to be long-term oriented uh, and more pluralistic than uh, short-term, more cloistered political um, uh, agreements and, and factions that we see otherwise uh, across America. So all that is to say that I do think that the key for, for um, cabining corporate power is not a constitutional question. And that's why I say that corporations are people too. They should act like it. The problem is not a constitutional problem. The problem is a corporate governance problem. Mm -hmm. If corporate governance, if corporate governance laws, Delaware or a nationalized corporate governance uh, framework were put in place where corporations had a fiduciary, corporate executives had a fiduciary duty to take into account the interests of all their stakeholders, or corporations were thought of as, as entities that had a much more robust set of obligations, then I would not be bothered at all with their involvement in the public square. If corporations were more democratic, I think their participation in democracy would be a good thing. Thank you so much for that clarification that we, we shouldn't look to constitutional law to cor corporate power. Um, what, where we should look is uh, corporate law and corporate governance and perhaps even securities law and increased disclosure. I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. If you could wave your wand and change something about how um, the Supreme Court views corporate purpose, what would that be? I think the Supreme Court should not continue to think that corporations are for the benefit of shareholders only. If 
corporations were seen, as many of us think they should be seen, as entities that have a broad range of responsibilities uh, and a, uh, to a broad range of stakeholders, then a lot of the, the, the doctrine that, that, that takes these corporate governance norms uh, for granted um, or, or presume certain outcomes in, uh, about corporate governance would come out a different way. And I think Hobby Lobby and Masterpiece Cake Shop would be uh, one example, but also, you know, broader First, First Amendment law, there's, there's cases that, that talk about, you know, the disclosure obligations, um, and the, the assumption is that disclosure obligations are really are, are important for shareholders. But I think if you saw corporations as a much more robust entity with a broader uh, set of obligations, then um, uh, disclosure law would be different, fiduciary duty law would be different, First Amendment law might be different, um, and, and on and on. Okay, so now for the crystal ball, what do you see for the future of corporate purpose? Where are we headed? As, as you and I were talking offline, I think you're right that we are at an inflection point. Now, I think, I think we, we have to talk about the gorilla in the room in, in a sense. We, we are, 2020 is an amazingly difficult and important year. Right? We started with an impeachment trial um, of a corrupt uh, uh, president. We now have a pandemic that is being um, mismanaged. Uh, we have massive protests around the country uh, to, to uh, get those of us um, who have, have uh, failed to over the decades to take, to take seriously the claims of systemic racism mm -hmm. um, and within police forces and other institutions. Uh, and we we have a moment. We have a we have a choice to make. Where uh, you know, the, are we going to sort of use this moment to reject those kinds of politics uh, and to rethink what democracy should look like going forward? That it's much more pluralistic, much more fair, much more just, and not just in the corporate space, but in the, the civil rights space, in the free First Amendment space. Uh, in, in, uh, in the economic space and business space. I, I think we, you know, we, if we take this chance to really do the, make the right choice, we have a, a chance that not many generations have had, um, which is to, to, to really change the direction of, of our democracy. One thing that we have seen over the last six months even, is how fragile our democracy can be when it is mishandled and misled. And I think there's a, there's a chance to, uh, to recast this. I think there's, uh, and, and I, I know because I've been involved in some of these discussions, as I'm sure you have, there's a whole set of policy recommendations and proposals that are in the box ready to be unpacked when somebody not named Donald Trump uh, is inaugurated. And I think I, there's a lot of really exciting things that we can do. We're at a moment where I think most American people, most American citizens are ready to see real leadership from the business community to, to, um, to be much more engaged with their obligations uh, to not just the bottom line, but you know, how, how well their employees are treated, how sustainable are their business operations, how fair and just are they to their consumers and the communities where they work? As I say in my book, you know, corporations are people doing they should act like it. As human beings, we have an obligation to engage in society in general. 
and I think if corporations take this seriously too, to balance all of their obligations uh, and, and to really be a positive, play a positive role in this transition to a much more um, flourishing democracy. I, I think the companies who are on the leading edge of that will bear not only, um, uh, will, will not only see real benefits from their actions, but also will see, will, will, will experience financial benefits too, because I think they will be, they will be rewarded in the marketplace if they are, if they uh, have play that kind of role. Well, I hope that your crystal ball comes true. And uh, I really want to thank you for taking your time, you know, amidst the global pandemic um, to share your views with us today. Your book is um, very profound and I highly recommend it to our audience and um, very grateful. Thank you, Kent. Really, it's such a pleasure. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.